0: Hi, Eden. Um, how are you today? You already opened the room. <laughs> <Okay>. Yes, <laughs> I didn't know what
1: I had to do. <laughs> oh,
0: don't worry. Um, yeah. Uh, can you um, click on my profile and make me a moderator? It's um, if you click on my profile all the way on the bot Yep. Perfect. Thank you. How are you? How was your weekend? Good, good. <laughs> Hi Akira, how are you? Uh Akira will be a guest speaker um later on so <laughs>
1: Ah, great.
0: Wait, let me get your slides. So I'll I'll mute myself for a couple of minutes. I'll add the, your slides and and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hi, everyone. We'll start in around um, eight minutes. So, thank you for coming. And, um, yeah, we will start soon. Oh, there are the slides. Perfect. We'll start in five minutes. Um, yeah, I posted all the links. So um, <laughs> I you doing <two, laughs> Thank you for coming again, Irene. And um, yeah, I hope you're enjoying your summer. Is it going <laughs> <Yes>. well? <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I don't know if the. If the if the weather is nice and burn, but it's a nice city. Are you, are you there
1: in the summer too, or? uh right now, yes. So it's been raining quite a, a lot lately, actually. But uh, but it's also warm. Like last year, we had floatings in the river, and it was very cold, so we couldn't really enjoy much the summer. But this summer is better.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's such a nice city and um, my f- family, we used to go a lot. We had friends living there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, Switzerland is nice.
1: I like it a lot. <laughs> I was yes. yeah, Actually, uh, for my postdoc, I'm planning to go to New York. So <laughs> oh, nice. I will get to know your cities. <laughs> where,
0: where are you going to New York? Like to which university?
1: Uh, to Colombia.
0: Nice, that's wonderful. Um, yeah, when are you going to start? Do you know already
1: or is it? Uh, not yet, probably more towards the end of the year or so, depends on the scholarship, which I still don't know when that will be, but uh, hopefully not uh, too far in the future. <laughs> I hope you don't come in the, <laughs> in the worst winter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when I moved back to the u s uh for my postdoc, I moved during the worst winter uh- I moved to Massachusetts and it was one of the coldest and worst winters oh, no. <laughs> In, I don't know how many years with the most snow and and the the ocean froze actually what wow (laughs) it was crazy people could play on the you know the the poor ducks and everything they were kind of they were frozen and when we came outside i don't know it was um, was an adventure (laughs) so i hope your winter won't be
1: like this when you move (laughs) 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 it'll be all good I was also I, before coming to Bern. I was um, working in the Kalahari desert, and I went from summer in the desert to winter in Switzerland. It was quite also a difference. Oh wow!
0: Yeah, definitely. That's that's a big
1: difference.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um. But we get somehow. We get used to it fast, no? I I think.
1: Oh, well, I don't know. I'm I'm from the so the south of Europe, and I'm always cold. So <laughs> winter is difficult for me. But um, yeah. yeah, I
0: understand. I'm from Porto, Portugal, originally, but I grew up.
1: Ah, so you know. <laughs>
0: yeah, but I grew up a lot in Germany, so I kind of got training while growing up. <laughs> so... <laughs> But yeah, but it's not as cold where I grew up in Germany as it gets here in the winter sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's very funny. It's very hot in, in the summer in New York and um, like we have really hot summers and the fall is really nice because then it's not as hot anymore but still very pretty and then the winters are usually very very cold. Although the last few winters there was way less snow and less cold. Um so I guess that's a trend now. We had a room last uh, week about climate um and we shouldn't like say that's an exception anymore. We just have to de- like say that this is normal now. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yes, <laughs> just getting more and more common these extreme weather now with climate change. So
0: Yeah, exactly. So anyhow. Oh, I think we can start. Uh we can slowly start. And um yeah. Um I'll introduce you. Um so uh, welcome everyone to the Science Society. Uh, thank you so much for coming, um, Irene, to talk with us here today. And um, let me introduce you a little bit um, to, to the audience here um, before you can, you know, you start your presentation about your really interesting work, so. Um, <laughs> Um, Irene Garcia Ruiz, she's at currently at the University of Bern. um, And her dissertation program is about mechanisms that shape the evolution of corporate cooperative breeding uh, with uh, Professor Michael Taborski. And um, she uh, did her degree in biology at the University of Valencia. And um, her master's in science at the University of Exeter in animal behavior, and she um, received the Dean's Commendation Prize for her thesis. And she is interesting. Uh, she is very interested in bigger questions regarding evolution and animal behavior, and especially. She um, is interested in um, studying social adaptations that shape social interactions between animals, also sexual selection and cognition, and um, yeah, we are very glad you're here today. And um, before we go to your presentation, if it's okay, I would ask you a more general question. But if you know, if you don't feel like. Mm, you have like a good answer you can we can <laughs> or if it's not something you you like too much to answer but um yeah is there like how how did you discover basically that you would like to work in this field uh, was there maybe a professor or some some book or you know some something that inspired you to go into this field or to become a scientist in general? Um, I think that's interesting for younger people that just start their career. So, uh.
1: um, Yeah, so I always been very interested in animals in general uh, since I was a kid. And I was also in the Scouts and I used to go a lot to the mountain and um, I really like to observe animals. And I noticed that Uh, you could understand a bit their aim sometimes right and uh, that we were not that different and i was always very interested to see uh, this commonality between humans and other animals and that was like maybe the first thing Uh, then when i was university there was a talk by a professor on uh, animal behavior and then is when i found like okay this is the thing i want to to spend my life off, uh, I was always very interested in psychology and this was like somehow related, but more uh, in the field that I was more interested in. And yeah, in general, I was interested in big questions that why do we behave the way we do? What moves us? Why we are the way we are? And uh, with we, I mean not just humans, but other animals. So, yeah, more or less that would be the reason why I started this. Uh, One of the books that really moved me uh, was The Selfish Gene uh, by Richard Dawkins. It explains very well uh, the underlying mechanisms of behavior and um, is a a very good book for uh, writing for a broad audience. So, you don't need to have uh, very technical knowledge about biology. And um uh, yeah, I recommend definitely.
0: <laughs> and yeah. So um should I start um, with the topic or uh yeah, yeah, thank you for that answer. So um yeah, that's wonderful that um you kind of went with your passion <laughs> and what <laughs> your love. That's uh, very inspiring. Thank you so much.
1: And yeah, please go ahead. The stage is yours. Thank you um okay so today i'm going to talk more broadly about altruism or similarly altruism which can be defined as a behavior of an individual but that benefits another to uh, at its own expense and uh if you go over to the slides um in the first one you can see this spectrum of cooperative systems this is an introduction uh Perhaps the most uh, famous forms of altruism in animals is uh, ants or bees, they have this uh, sociality that they behave basically like a super organism in which you have the uh, reproductive uh, like the queen and uh, some males that may fecund the queen and then you have a lot of sterile workers. Uh, but there is also uh, it's a, basically a continuum degree of um, cooperation, uh, so it ranges from solitary breeding uh, then we find social breeding, which will be uh, groups in which the breeding females live and breed together in the same social group and group members may cooperate to defend for resources against neighboring groups or to deter um, predators and in this case, we will have like there is some philopatry or the dispersal in this uh, species. Then we have uh, communal breeders that are groups that include multiple uh, breeding females who share care for the young born in the group. So we'll have the other characteristic of alloparental care. Then we have cooperative breeding that, uh, in which offspring of dominants are cared by their parents and also by non-breeding helpers. And in this case, we have this reproductive skill, which yeah, we have this dominance that breed, and then the subordinates that don't breed, or they delayed breeding and take care of the offspring. And the, uh, in the stream, we have a social species, which is a type of obligatory cooperative uh, breeding, uh, and normally exceeds uh, like a stream task specialization, to the point that in some kinds there is even these morphological differences uh, between classes. So uh, the, co- the evolution of cooperation uh, remains a central parallel of biology. This is since the time of Darwin. He remarked on the origin of species that natural selection will never produce in a being anything introduced to itself, for natural selection absolutely by and for the good of each. So, there is a bit of a puzzle of why we find this um, cooperation or altruism in nature. And the first proposed solution to this problem was that kinship could be an important factor for cooperation. This was then later uh, formalized by Huntington. is his idea of inclusive fitness theory, which was later on uh, known as skin selection, which states that altruistic cooperation can be favored if the benefits to the recipients weighted by the genetic relatedness between the recipient and the actor is bigger than the cost to the actor. So if I'm helping a sibling, uh, then I'm also indirectly passing my genes. Right? But if I help a cousin, it's less related. So I will invest less than I would do with my brother, for instance. No, that will be a bit the prediction and uh, the Hamilton. However, uh, this framework lacks explanatory power for the evolution of cooperation in presence of unrelated helpers, which are also pretty common in cooperative breeders. And in addition, if aplodiploid species are excluded, for instance, ants and so on, and bees, uh, it's not clear that the degree of relatedness is consistently higher in cooperative breeders um, in comparison with other species that live in stable groups but do not breed cooperatively. So in the page two of the, this uh, link, you can see there is a wide range of cooperative breeding uh, animals, and this can also be uh, vertebrates and invertebrates. And we find this in mammals, and birds, and even fish. So why to provide parental care? Uh, as I mentioned before, one explanation is this skin selection with uh, these um, indirect benefits. And there are different mechanisms to which we can obtain this high relatedness between social partners. So one is uh, limited dispersal or philopatry. However, in those cases, there is also an increase in competition between related individuals, and this is because they compete with group members for reproduction and for resources. So, they will be competing with kin as well. So, this can hamper the evolution of cooperation. And another mechanism will be kin discrimination. And this can be, for instance, due to environmental cues, as for instance, that you were born in the group and all the members in the group were born there. So, you know, by the environment, that they must be related to you. And uh, another solution is some genetic cues, for instance, self-matching. So if they look like you or if they don't, (laughs) it can also be due to a similar odor or other cues. Then there is also the possibility that there is some direct fitness benefits that is selecting for this alloparental care. One of the hypotheses is the group augmentation hypothesis which states that if group size offer an improved survival of fecundity, subordinates may help to increase group size. And this can be divided into two types of benefits. There is the short-term benefit, which is when a helper is uh, helping to produce offspring of the breeder. And this offspring is a benefit to the helper while it is a helper. And this can be, for instance, because uh, there is a bigger uh, number of um, just by the presence of more uh, members in the group, like these safety numbers. You can see this, for instance, in those huge banks of fish. When there is a predator, if you are many, you are just less likely to be predated, that you are free, right? Then you are probably a target. Uh, but it can also be because they are uh, actively helping. And this can be, for instance, you to predator uh, defense. Or being vigilant, like we see uh, in Mirkas, that are standing and looking at the horizon if they see some pressure. Can also be allocroomy, this is pretty common in monkeys. But there are also long term benefits, and this is in the case that the helper inherits the bleeding position in the territory, and these new recruits help in turn to their survival or reproductive outcome. And even though there is a positive correlation, In many cooperative buildings between group size and survival there is very little evidence of this hypothesis so uh, this is one uh, the hypothesis i will be focusing on uh, uh, in this presentation because i focus in my research together with gene selection and uh, the reason why it's not uh, too clear whether it is can be a viable um hypothesis for the evolution of health is that uh the it may not be resistant to cheaters because helping incurs an individual fitness goals however it conveys a communal serve benefits and therefore it may suffer from the classic tragi- uh, tragedy of the commons problem uh but there are also other hypotheses that is the so-called pay to stay in which uh helping is as a form of re- Paying rent in order to be allowed to be in the territory of the dominance because there is, uh, for instance, lack of territory or because uh, it's very dangerous to be out there alone. So you are basically paying a rent that the breeders will not kick you out and evict you from the territory. It can also be. as an exchange with the breeders um, for parentage acquisition. Since in many groups, the breeders don't allow subordinates to breed, then it can be like, OK, if I help you, you let me breed a bit in your territory. It can also be as a sign of social prestige because health is costly. So it can be used as a sign of quality to potential partners. And it can also be to gain parental experience In many birds, for instance, they normally lose the first clutch due to inexperience, so they can train with the offspring of others, and then get better at it. Um, But as I said, um, before, one of the key uh, components for cooperative breeding is not only that they they give alloparental care, but also that first they have to form a group, right? So why to delay dispersals in the first place? Uh, So uh, one of uh, there is many benefits to dispersal. One will be uh, to acquire the, your own breeding position because you are not allowed to breed in someone else's territory. Also, to lower competition for resources and to avoid competition with kin, as I mentioned before, and also to in- avoid inbreeding since you are related to those in the group if there is no immigration. On the other hand, why to delay dispersal? There is two main hypotheses for this. One is uh, the benefits of philopatry, which assumes the subordinate o- obtain benefits uh, from staying in the group, for instance, by raising kin production to uh, increase survival because it's safer to be in the in the group, or because they want to queue to inherit the territory from the do- dominance later on. Uh, the other hypothesis is the ecological constraints, which states that there is ecological factors that constrain helpers to disperse and breed, and this can be due to habitat saturation or habitat quality and or predation pressure. And therefore, uh, the ecological context is uh, very important. However, there is not a clear uh, which kind of environment selects for cooperation. As we see in uh, in page five uh, in the diagram I sent before, uh, there is a comparative um, and biological study that suggests that both benign and harsh environments as well as fluctuating and stable environments can favour the evolution of uh, cooperative breeding, which is, creates this paradox between environment quality and sociality. And in the left, um, Figure, what you can see is that uh, the environmental hardness and the probability of cooperation, so for starlings, um, they seem to evolve cooperation in, in unstable and unpredictable environments. However, for hornbills, it is the opposite trend. They seem to have less likelihood to cooperate in harsher um, conditions. As well, we can see in a phylogenetic study in PERS that cooperative breeding seems to be more likely to evolve in benign environment niches, which later on facilitates the invasion of hazard environments. So, this is also something that is a key factor to consider when we are talking about cooperative breeding. However, models or uh, looking at uh, the evolution of cooperation have not taken this too much into account. So the aims of my study was to use a theoretical approach entangled on uh, the role of group augmentation from kinship-related benefits for the evolution of cooperative and in different ecological scenarios. And for that, I developed an individual-based model in which helping behavior and dispersal co-evolve. And in order to disentangle this role of kin selection and group-dependent uh, benefits, uh, we compare the outcome of these models with a benchmark model in which we remove the influence of relatedness. And in addition, we construct these models uh, in a way that uh, helping and uh, dispersal could be uh, a fixed behavior through the life of individuals, or it could be age-dependent, as they may uh, show plasticity uh, through their lives. So in page uh, six, you can see the life cycle uh, of the model. So first of all, the breeders will reproduce. And um, how much the productivity of the breeder is, is function of the accumulative level of health provided by the subordinates. So the more health, the more offspring they will produce. Then um, those that are in a group uh, uh, that were helpers or the newborns, uh, they may either decide to stay or to disperse and become, uh, yeah, dispersed. And at this time, we can also allow uh, the floaters or dispersed individuals to join a group. And in this case, we set up a randomly selected group. So. Those that decide to stay in a group, they may help. And this is conditioned also to a genetic predisposition, which will let to evolve together with this dispersal predisposition. And uh, they can also help uh, zero. So we also are not forcing uh, those individuals neither to, to form a group, neither to help. So we want to see in which conditions will cooperative breeding um, evolve by itself. And then uh, there is survival round in which the mortality depends on group size, so we assume that there is a benefit of uh, survival even in larger groups. This is of course only the case for breeders and subordinates, not for those that decide to disperse. And uh, those that help had a a cost in their survival, because helping is uh, costly. And then if the breeder dies, then there is a competition to, to become a new breeder. And this, uh, the candidates are the subordinates that are in the group together with a sample of floaters. And uh, the livelihood to become a new breeder is uh, increasing with their age. So this plasticity that I mentioned before to their age is actually a plasticity with their livelihood to is compared to the likelihood that they may become breeders. And then those that are still alive increase one age and the cycle repeats. And so now what we see, the results uh, when we compare group augmentation and key selection through different environments, from low mortality to high mortality, is that first of all, when there is no benefits of group size, that will be the triangles in phase 7, uh, they do not evolve health, neither they evolve philopatry or delayed um, dispersal. So it seems that these uh, direct uh, fitness benefits of group size are very important for the evolution of philopatry, and then which enables then the evolution of health. What we see then is that in low mortality environments, Uh, Only those that are, uh, when there is skin selection present, that will be purple um, points, uh, it can able help. So when there is no uh, skin selection acting because we remove relatedness, we see that they don't able help. However, in uh, higher mortality environments, like harsh environments, we see like those green dots, that they able help even in the also zone-relatedness. So uh, to sum up a bit, the, the results in benign environments helping can only evolve through kin selection, while in harsh environments, uh, helping can evolve both by kin selection and group augmentation. And then uh, to go a bit into uh, the age-dependent plasticity, uh, I saw in page eight, the results dividing point the we have relatedness present in the model and when we remove it and then environments that are saturated so environments that are benign and environments that are saturated so they are harsher and we see that there is quite some difference so if we look uh, in the environments that are saturated when there is um, present relatedness we see that health decreases with age as relatedness decreases with age therefore they are adjusting Help to the levels of relatedness in the group. And we also see that there is some dispersal when they are young, and then they just stay in the group. And this is because they try to avoid to compete with kin. If we see in the uh, in the right panel, uh, when there is no relatedness, there is not this um, dispersal at young age, which means that they are dispersing to avoid uh, competing with kin for the being position. What we also see is that when there is not relatedness in these saturated environments, the, the level of health has the opposite tendency, which increases with age, which means that increases with the likelihood that they will inherit the territory and this corresponds with this long term group augmentation, because they are increasing health as their chances to become breeders increases and therefore the chances that they get those benefits from helping. Um, And then if we look at unsaturated or harsh environments, we see that they have a different shape of uh, dispersal, which is the blue, so that they stay first uh, in the territory uh, when they are young. And when they are enough competitive to try to breed, then they disperse. Therefore, this corresponds to uh, that they stay in the natural territory as a safe haven and uh, help to raise the, the kin since they are already there. Uh, and um, therefore, they obtain direct and indirect fitness benefits. So to conclude from these uh, experiments or where this uh, model, what we see is that been fitness benefits from grouping are the main driver for the evolution of philopatry or delay dispersal. That selection is the main responsible for the emergence of alloparental care. However, group augmentation is a sufficient promoter in harsh environments. And that the relative importance of alternative evolutionary forces on the evolution of cooperation depend on the hardness of the environment. So uh, it can evolve both in harsh and benign environments But through different mechanisms. And this age dependent uh, dispersal is triggered by group benefits, so protecting uh, protection at home when they're young and relatedness to uh, reduce competition with kin. And that's all. So if you have any questions or comments, I'd be glad to take it.
0: Thank you so much um, for this wonderful presentation. It's, uh, It's so interesting. Can I ask you a general question uh, first, like, about the research? Um, Yes. (laughs) So do you think that um, so far we didn't look at cooperation much in evolution? I was kind of ruled out all the time, you know, the um, selfish genes and things like that. Do you think it is or it was historically because it was so male or um, men dominated fields that they don't maybe care so much about cooperation on a lot of testosterone and that's why it wasn't really taken seriously before or i don't know do you even want to answer that question i'm
1: sorry (laughs) but uh so i i don't know if this is related i mean the thing is that the study of animal behavior is not very old so it was started by Conrance Lawrence, and that was not so many years ago. So it's a prison field. And it it has been studied a bit under this skin selection theory. Uh, because I mean ants are very obvious, like something has to why why do they do this, right? I mean, others perhaps were less obvious because you have them to observe them for longer. But, but ants perhaps house are the most striking example of like this huge difference between, I mean, the helpers are not even able to breed in many cases. Some they can, but they have this policy in which the other workers will eat the eggs if they, someone tries to breed. So it was very difficult to, to explain why uh, this behavior might come up. Also, I think another reason is that it was very focused on humans. So I feel that there was this bias towards thinking, humans are so great, so we can do all this and this and that. And what we've seen later later on in more recent years is that many behaviors that we thought were exclusively humans, uh, like, for instance, tool use, are not so. It's more of a degree of ability than more of a uh, the uh differentiation between animals and
0: uh, humans. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, I don't know if you know the work um, Global Brain uh, from Howard Bloom. He's like a author here in New York City, but he wrote a bunch of books like back in time and he wrote a whole book about group selection and not just individual selection. It's Mm -hmm. really interesting, I don't know if you know it. I know it's it's a bunch of years old, but it's still worth reading because I think it supports, you know, his theories that he had back then really support a lot the research that you're doing. So it's really interesting to see from that perspective. And he will be also coming here. So if you wanna come and uh, interview him, you know, like ask him questions. (laughs) Uh, you, you were invited. Yeah, to. sure. Uh, I, I <laughs> if it, yeah, he isn't here in New York City. He made some also some science organizations here in the city, which are really interesting. He's an interesting person, you know, very, um, you know, typical New York City person. <laughs>
1: but, um, I mean, yeah. I don't know personally his work completely, um, but I mean, so. Group selection, as of group selection, how it was uh, initially thought, um, is is known to not be correct. So we know that selection acts uh, to the level of genes, and normally then to the level of individuals because they are the ones carrying the genes, right? However, there is some recent uh, revisions to group selection theory. Uh, that are kind of renamed to multi-level selection, in which states that if um, competition mainly occurs between groups, then those characteristics of that will favor certain groups to outcompete other groups may be selected. So ultimately, selection always works at the genetic level, but it can have these kind of levels in which it is selected on certain group characteristics. If, for instance, they are better cooperators and actors from uh, other groups, and the other groups then just get eliminated because it's more of a either you survive the whole group or you just die, for instance. In those cases, yes. But uh, how it was initially thought, uh, it has been shown that this is not correct, this group selection. Yeah, interesting. Yeah.
0: Um, so- I know it goes a little bit away from, and I want to give Dennis um opportunity to, to ask that. So, how is that hypothesis? Because I'm not an evolutionary biologist. Mm-hmm. Um, so so how are these um, phenomena explained that? For example, we have a lower percentage in left-handed uh, people or, you know, in theory, just by, you know, this, approach of individual selection, they shouldn't be around anymore, right? Or um, a few other um, traits that are around 5% in the population. Um, You know, the the explanation I read so far is that to keep like um, in the whole group, a bigger gene pool. So in case something happens that maybe those few have hold some key to survival of some future environmental stress that's you know is there mm-hmm. a change like h- how do people explain this
1: uh so first of all um we have to think that selection is not a thought process right so selection this happens and it doesn't have like an aim that i want to reach here um so, for instance, uh, the eye has been used many times. Like, oh, this thing that is so complex uh, had had to be kind of designed, right? Because uh, else the previous uh, tests were not working. So, how do we reach to the eye? And actually, when you see that the eye is, as a design perspective, is uh, completely wrong. It's the other way. And as we have like this spot that is blind, is because. Um, is very poorly designed which means that all the steps until we reach to this i had to also somehow be functional and um with this uh percentage that you say so uh selection uh can be strong and can be weak so if there is some characteristic that is not strongly selected against this can also just survive and um it's it also might depend if the environment changes, as you mentioned before, right? So uh, maybe some forms that were very well adapted when there is an environmental change, they are not so well adapted anymore. And then a new uh, a form that was before not so well adapted now becomes more adapted. So this means that in general, it's good to have variants in a population. So when all the population is basically the same, it's not resistant to change. And it's better to have some variation uh, to to adapt to a changing environment, but it's not that evolution thought, oh, we should keep a few uh, in case something changes, right? It might be just because of mm, the selection was not strong enough, or just because there was an environment before that was favoring this, and now it's favoring a different phenotype. But uh, yeah. I don't know if that
0: answers your question. Yeah, yeah it's good. <laughs> thank you so much. No, it's it's a perfect end. But these are the kind of questions you know people ask around the evolution. So yeah, thank you mm-hmm. for answering them. And then Dennis, do you, do you want to ask a question?
2: Thanks, Karen. Yeah, um, thank you, Dr. Irene, for this really amazing presentation. Um, I was, you know, in the discussion, listening to it. I was curious this falls outside the realm of academia, but I can't help but wonder what traditional cultures have to say about these phenomena. And also, it just, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That variability actually is and the key to resilience in whether it's at population level or even an individual level. Yeah, those are my comments for this time.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And now, even also with climate change, we have a more changing environment. So, this variability is uh, even more important than it used to be. And the species that have, uh, for instance, uh, very decimated, I don't know, due to habitat fermentation, whatever, there is few individuals, there is a lot of inbreeding, which is in itself a problem because there is deleterious mutations that will not get rid of but also they are less different between them. So they are also less resistant to change.
2: I'm trying to think of an ecosystem on the planet where it's just one dominant species. Even if you're talking about a terrestrial monocrop, like a farm field where all they grow is corn for hundreds of miles, there's still diversity in the environment there, there are birds, insects, there's soil microbiota um, and like without these elements actually the system collapses. So I think that diversity is really something that we should be um, encouraging in policy and
1: practice. Uh, uh, Yes, I mean, maybe a very good example is what happened in Yellowstone uh, National Park so they basically um, removed the wolf. <laughs> and um, that caused a cascade of events um, because it was a key predator. And then, I mean, I don't remember exactly all the details, but uh, basically there, there started to be a lot more of um, game, uh, which ate all the crust, Then the, le- uh, the birds left. Even the beavers left, so they, it, it changed the course of the rivers, and they reintroduced the wolf later on, and it restored the ecosystem again. The beavers came back, the river uh, started to to have these uh, wolves by the beavers, which make it less strong. There was less erosion, uh, there was less grass eaters. Well, then the birds came back, and the whole ecosystem restored. And this is, talking about one species so sometimes it even depends on like one key species or, or so that makes a huge difference in the ecosystem so, so the more variability the more resistant it is to change the, if there was a fair has another species that could have replaced uh, the wolf in is uh, in its role in the ecosystem but sometimes uh, is um, very fragile right so so it's important to keep that in mind that biodiversity is, uh, is very important
2: yeah. yeah that's a great point um there are several studies the wolf studies are are pretty good in terms of being able to paint a picture of how important they are um in the aquatic ecosystem you can look at sharks and you know there are examples mm-hmm. all over the place yeah uh, yeah, uh, that's actually another
1: problem. <laughs> they are off, hunting them a lot, and they are, they breed very slow, so they have a lot of problem to to be restored. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting that you've mentioned sort of this idea of redundancy in in species at the species level. So if if uh, species one does service X, then having three or four more specialized. I mean, you know, you can look at finches or lots of avians to see this dynamic. Um, And a lot of them hyper-specialized, so it's not, you know, like you were saying, habitat fragmentation or other sorts of resources that they're unable to access at that time. The specialists actually have more, um, less resistance to the change because they're not generalists. Mm -hmm. They only eat this one thing and if you remove that thing from the environment, well, then that's gone. But, um, so it's, it's interesting as a double-edged sword, uh, the specialism versus the, generaliz- the generalists and, but, you know, even if you're designing a spaceship, uh, NASA's best standards are triple redundant. Like <laughs> you have to have backup systems. So that's, uh, you know, engineers can understand this. It's very frustrating that policymakers cannot.
1: <laughs> yeah, ecosystem the same. <laughs> you need the backups. <laughs> Something happens. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: So I have a question.
0: That's again, um, maybe. So there was a recent a public. There were a few recent publications concerning about um if humans. Live by themselves for a prolonged time, it's really bad for their health and they have uh lower life expectations uh I wanted to ask um do you is there um data that having this cooperative breeding um does it increase or slow down aging basically also in animals like did you try to isolate um, individuals for a while or, you know, for a prolonged time and then see them maybe age faster or become sick or
1: something uh, like? So, yeah, this is not my area exactly of expertise. However, I mean, not to the individual level, like you mentioned, that humans in isolation, um, uh, yeah, they survive uh, less time, that's uh, even Seems to be worse than smoking. <laughs> uh, of, of course, it may depend if whether it's a chosen thing or imposed. Um, so, uh, uh, being solitary, uh, in animals, what we do see is that there is a correlation uh, between uh, the degree of sociality and um, life expectancy. Uh, not at the individual level, but at the species level. Those that the species that have cooperation. They seem to live longer than those that do not cooperate, however, this is a correlation, and the causation is not well understood It's not understood in the sense of it could be the other way that because you live long and uh, you can also uh, benefit more of cooperation and so on but for instance, a good example is uh mole rats mole rats have uh de- depends with species of mole rats, but and uh, they have a Similar system in naked mole for instance, to to ants. This eusociality is one of the few uh, vertebrates that have this extreme specialization um, between uh, dominants and workers, uh, more similar to what we find in ants. And other type of rodents, they live like up to two years, and this can live up to 20. So it's a big (laughs) difference. Uh, but again, I, it is not known exactly uh, the direction of this correlation, which is the causation link, but there seems to be a general link between uh, cooperative breeding and, and uh, long-lived animals. Yeah.
0: That is so interesting. I wish I, I spoke with you earlier, uh, because last Friday <laughs> we had a guest speaker here. He looks at um, gene mutations across uh, species, really a lot of species, like from uh, whales to you know rodents. Um, he works with zoos and different organizations and wildlife, um, and then he gets some specimen, um, like some um, tissue, and then looks at mutation at diff- also at different ages and to figure out what protects some animals from like aging and cancer specifically, for example, where they are so youth, they should get cancer pretty easily, but they don't. So, you know, to look Mm -hmm. at an aging mechanisms, um, but the mostly he looked at was um, carnivore versus plant eaters, because, you know, based on like Mm -hmm. uh, data from humans, but this would be, A really um, cool way to to sort the data: um, collaborative species or this non collaborative species. So, yeah, thank you. Maybe I'll I'll write. <laughs> so yeah, that that is really interesting. Um, so does the size vary? Like, are collaborative um species in general smaller or? Um, are they? You know, it doesn't really make any changes in their size.
1: Uh, that I know of. I don't. I don't know any correlation between size, uh, of the individuals. Uh, but for instance, what we know. Uh, I also work with fish, so I not only do models. I also do es- experiments, and uh, those that are. Uh, cooperating they uh, have uh, delayed growth and this can be because they are working so they can either they cannot eat as much as they would want or because also there is this competition uh, with dominance so in species where there is a strong dominance competition they may better not grow too much because else they get too close to the size of the dominant and then may be a fight happening for saying who is more dominant than the other so sometimes it's better just to avoid (laughs) competing and uh, just grow when you want to reproduce so we see this that just before they are going to to disperse and try to breed they increase growth a lot they have apparently some reserves uh, to to speed up growth and uh, this also probably because of this competition as well so yeah, I don't know of this correlation between size and um, and cooperation, but there there is an effect of uh, in growth and size uh, for those that are helping. Yeah,
0: that is so interesting. Thank you so much, and that is that is really cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, thanks for <a> your
0: question. <laughs> Maybe I should uh, introduce you to uh, Alex Kagan. He's in the UK. Um, doing research movie, <laughs> should talk um, so uh yeah De- Denise, did you have another question? I kind of cut you off there, so I'm sorry,
2: no, no, that's fine. Um, no, I can't think of anything right now. Sorry, I'm also a little busy on my side.
0: yeah, um, I had another question um, in the meantime, so um. When you look at um, this different environments, right? You you say the benign environments and the harsh environments they actually um, act very differently. Did you mm-hmm. maybe, um, or are you planning to maybe in the future look at maybe gene expression changes or um, you know some molecular changes that maybe happen? that induce this change in behavior or some neural activity or is there anything that kind of uh, points like what what happens in the body that they will change this behavior is there is there anything going in that direction uh
1: yeah um not molecular experts, but there is definitely people looking into these things, like what happens during the lifetime of an individual and what changes um, does this produce. Um, there is not too much research on this like, um, the environment and the different uh, selective pressures that it has in this type of behavior. Normally, because like I kind of mentioned before, um, it is really not know much about what mechanisms are selecting in cooperation. So, kin-, kin selection has been more broadly studied, and there is seems to be quite some um, um, proof that this is a key factor. But there is not too much on this direct fitness benefits. So there is a lot of scope to to investigate more on this. Yeah. And yeah, there is for sure some uh, molecular changes. Uh,
0: but uh, yeah, I'm not an expert in this. I I cannot say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't understand. Yeah, it would be just interesting to see if there are like hormonal changes or maybe epigenetic changes that you know trigger this um, switch and becoming more supportive, um, like. If scarcity induces like something in the, in the brain or in epigenetic mechanisms, kind of? Uh, well, yep.
1: the only thing I, I do know is that there seems to be uh, maternal effects. So, uh, in some species, there is research that says that, for instance, if the parents grew in a particularly harsh um, year, and then the offspring has a different reaction to the environment uh in their helping or their behavior Uh, so there seems to be some maternal effects there yeah
0: so victoria is asking in the chat if you have a book that's really um good to learn about um you know your area of research that you would recommend that people could read to kind of Learn more about your fields um, that you think it's really great or really interesting.
1: Um, I don't know about particularly the cooperation like as like more broad, but like I mentioned before, um, for more broad audience uh, in uh, behavior, I definitely recommend the self fifteen that like, is super interesting. You'll also learn a lot about your own behavior and how yeah, how it's shaped. And uh, it, it's very easy to understand. And I, I definitely recommend it.
0: Yeah, that's a really great book. I, I agree, it's wonderful. Um, thank you. Hi, Serena, how are you? Do you want to, I know you just arrived, so I'm not sure. Do you have a question or did you want to say something?
2: Oh, no, I just, I'm on the road. Um, I just I popped in. I'm sorry I'm late, but um, just got here, so I'll listen.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Bye. Um, Denise, go ahead.
2: I had another addition to that. If you want to get um, an idea of general population dynamics or a broader view, I would even suggest there are probably textbooks you can find online. I don't have anything specific, sorry. But um, you know, I remember going through my, my undergraduate coursework and this stuff, there were, you know, entire sections, if not chapters on this, this topic. So that could also be a place to start for people.
0: Yeah, Um. do you like for how long um is there a time scale that um, like that you could keep this harsh environment um, and does this um, does this behavior stay um, even like if you let's say keep the harsh environment for a few generations would there ever be or did you see any switch in between that that um although the the environment um is that way, or is it very stable throughout uh, different generations?
1: Um, I mean, this is probably an evolved behaviour of the conditions that they grew up, so it, it would be very, I guess, uh, unrealistic that suddenly everything is benign. <laughs> uh, what I can say is that uh, we do have uh, fish in the lab, which are from the cooperative breeding uh, breeders, and uh, they they have this harsh environment because there is a lot of predation, and in the lab there is no predation <laughs> at all, <laughs> and they show the the same behaviors as uh, you see in the field. There is no real difference. Uh, so it probably takes uh, quite some time, some evolutionary time, to to make any difference. I would guess. Yeah, because what I'm asking is.
0: If you keep the the harsh environment um for several generations the the breed the ones that are supportive um should die out over time right um because they don't they don't give their gene um, they don't pass on their gene and I was wondering if there at some point is some mechanisms so do um can you predict which of the ones that breed can you predict their offspring who will become um a supporter or who will um become the actual breeder is there some indication I don't know they are bigger they're they like you know is there is there some indicator who who becomes who
1: ah uh, it- yeah, I mean, that depends on the species. Uh, there has to be. <laughs> uh, for instance, in my fish, uh, it's just the bigger wings because uh, dominance is highly linked to size, and they have indeterminated growth. So those that are bigger just uh, are stronger competitors, and they will take over the breeding position. Uh, in other species, uh, there is, for instance, some wasps in there that is known that they know who is going to be the next. But we don't see any difference. So <laughs> there, there has to be something. We just don't know what. And in this thing that you say cooperative and non-cooperative uh, if environment change. Uh, actually, you can go to the page five of this uh, thing I sent before. There is this diagram with um, cooperative, non-cooperative uh, and harsh environment. And there you can see with the thickness of the arrows, how likely is those transitions happen? So there seems to be that the most likely transition is that a species that is cooperative, then they can invade a harsh environment because it will be more resistant to the hardness, like, uh, for instance, if there is not much uh, rainfall and it's very difficult to find food or there is a lot of predators, being in a cooperative group uh, might be beneficial and being already in a cooperative group allows you to survive while others would not survive. So it definitely can just die out the behavior of cooperating or not, but it, it can offer a new opportunity uh, to invade a different type of habitat that others will not survive. in.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was um, just wondering if it's, um, you know, if there's like a predisposition, some genetic or, you know, some gene expression mechanism for you to become a supporter, you know, this, this works really well for you in general, if the stress is kind of short lived, right. Um, But with, you know, climate change and how the environment is changing, this is more likely to become a prolonged um, state for a lot of species, and yeah. The my question is if that corporative breeding will um, will survive in the future or or not. Because you know, for that individual, um, for those individuals, if this um, stress uh, stays that way um it doesn't really make any sense because they will never have the opportunity to pass on their their genes so that's why i'm asking if you know if you maybe have a plan or somebody has a plan to to continuously um expose them to the stress for generations just to see to predict basically what will happen in the future to species that have this cooperative breeding strategy
1: uh, yeah. Like I mentioned before in this image, uh, there seems that those that uh, so in if if they live in a benign environment, no, this cooperative pieces, and then the environment becomes harsher, uh, there seems that there, there is uh, many that will be able uh, to stay in the harsh environment uh, more, those that are cooperative than those that are not cooperative. So what it means is that those that are cooperative they can buffer the stressor of a harsh environment better by cooperating than those that do not cooperate. I mean, of course, that would depend on the species, but there seems to be that cooperation buffers this environmental challenge and allows you to, to continue. Yeah. So I, I will expect that in even more that there, there will be a higher maybe rate of cooperation Uh, With the climate change, perhaps because they they kind of um, survive maybe better than others that do not cooperate. But that I don't know. Yes, uh, it's a very interesting uh, question, and for sure will be interesting to see uh, this how uh, climate change will affect uh, cooperation. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I think so. You know, it could be my very uneducated um point of view um is that would be if this corporation survives although it's really bad actually for a bunch of individuals in the group because they don't get to pass on their specific you know gene patterns um then you know this (laughs) the theory that there's um that the t- the individual genetic um um content basically is the main driver uh, it doesn't really make too much sense to me then then it's more a group evolution um,
1: um no because for instance <laughs> so with kin selection right so maybe you don't pass your genes yourself and you die but if you manage to help uh, those that are related to you to produce more offspring then your genes of those cooperative genes will survive through someone else so in those groups that they are cooperative genes if they are together right then they are helping to make more copies of those genes. those while if you don't have the cooperative gene, then those around you also don't have it and they don't help you to produce more, right? So so they are more likely to get extinct.
0: Yeah, I see. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, Denise, does anyone in the audience have uh, more questions? Um, because we are on the hour. Yeah, go ahead, Denise.
2: Yeah, I was just thinking about the, the size element varying by species in terms of fitness for for taking over the dominant role in breeding. It's interesting because with ants this can be seen, but then with geese it's not, so I do wonder what the dynamics there are. Obviously there's a there's an equity issue where there's more equity when the sizes are the same. But in terms of It's really interesting, right? Because you have to look at it from the individual and then the group level or the population level. So like Katerina was saying, some selfish individuals want to pass on their gene pattern. And then there are others that are more or less concerned with that. They're more concerned with the cooperation of the groups. It's very interesting to see those dynamics play out over species and time.
1: Yeah, I mean that also depends then on this reproductive skew, whether it's more skew or not, and that is a highly debated topic. Uh, so there is like two main trends on this. Those that say that basically the breeders make concessions to to those um, subordinates to, to allow them to breed, maybe in a sense of reproduction of help or something like that. And also those that have an incomplete control, and then they cannot prevent all of them to reproduce. And uh, of course, this depends on dominance, and it can be based on size, but it can also be based on strength or other qualities. And some are a bit more cryptic to us to know which is the difference. Uh, but um, there has to be some differences, <laughs> definitely. And uh, yeah, so. In comparative breeds, even those that have high skew, uh, there is normally still some degree of shared parent so There's some, I mean, yeah, some try to breed as well, those that are subordinates. Uh, in ants, for instance, a bit different, the story, because they have like this different genetics in which they have these, uh, the males have, uh, upload, are deployed and the females are deployed, and the uh, relatedness is a, bit more complicated there but there, there is also this uh, difference in morphology which is determined uh, very early so it's also difficult maybe for one that's uh, de- developed as a worker then to to reproduce and when they reproduce the thing is that the queen maybe can lay a hundred eggs and uh, while you can lay one so looking into this king selection by hamilton It's even better for you to help the queen to reproduce, because it it is way more efficient at that than to reproduce yourself. It still sometimes happens, and like I said, they have this policy in which other ants will kill the eggs of anyone that will try to breed. But it may even pay to you uh, by genetics that someone else reproduces when you are not as efficient as, for instance, the queen in ants.
0: Is it always so rational, though? Um, I read a recent publication that, um, and then there was also like a news, um, talking about this. That, um, for example, you know, there's also sexual selection, right, where it's just mm-hmm. being pretty, like in birds, and and there's this very interesting cricket, um, species in India, that um, the ones that, um, usually the ones that can make the loudest sounds are the most attractive ones and they get um, more offspring mm-hmm. but there are individuals that um that use um kind of holes in um in the plants to amplify their voices so they are actually not um loud <laughs> are you kidding <laughs> me? they're awesome they're actually quite weak. <laughs> They are actually quite weak (laughs) and small and stuff, but because they use this amplifier, um, they get just as much or more um, to reproduce as the ones that are, you know, actually, you know, loud and strong (laughs) crickets. (laughs) So sexual selection is kind of tricky, right? I mean,
2: the musician cricket.
0: I mean, also what is mean, pretty over time in humans, it doesn't really make too much sense a lot of times. You know, they are very pretty people that have totally screwed up genes, like, underneath, like,
1: <laughs> it's... Not, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's I that's mean, selection is not perfect. And in this case, those crickets are using a bias in the females and taking it in their profits. Yeah, that, so to the female, that is not in their advantage because the offspring will be weak. But maybe even not that in not in the advances, because the thing is that if those that are louder reproduce more then what you want is that your sons will also be loud and if your sons are making the same trick and they get as many figures or even more then good for you then you are passing your genes as well so uh yes it's not perfect and you can use these tricks i mean that's just one trick but sometimes it's even there is another male like uh, small and quiet and looks like a female gets close to the male and when the other females comes this uh, small and female like male reproduces with the females, and it uh, was attracted by another one, but he sneaked in and like this, there are many examples yeah.
2: that's so- so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Wow so, yeah at
1: the end what matters is that you make a lot of copies of you and however the means (laughs) and prettiness of course is a proxy of your quality i mean not only your teens but maybe also your condition like you are well fed means also that probably you have good teens but of course you can uh, it's not a perfect Walls and you can trick with your looks and then your chins are screwed <laughs> have a heart disease so that is not showing uh whatever you know
2: that reminds me of so... a cowbird <laughs> that uh this is this bird in south america and they they don't trick to breed but they trick to rear which is they will go into another bird's nest and just leave their egg there it's substantially similar to the other one can't tell it until it's hatched, so they literally they just pawn off their egg <laughs> on another species. Brood
1: parasitism, of yeah. Well, I mean the famous one is the cuckoo, right? The, the the eggs are not even similar. Like it's like three times the size of the other eggs, and as when the bird burns, it kicks all the other eggs out of the nest, and then the parents are growing this huge chick that is bigger than the parents but they are not able to discriminate it. So there is like this arm race between those are parasitic and those that are the host to to distinguish between each other. So the parasitic to to try to hide um, like the eggs or whatever and the others to recognize this. noises. This arm race is called the Red Queen, like from Alice in Waterlands, because you have to always move to stay in the same place, right? And that also happens, for instance, within the immune system, and viruses, so the viruses are always evolving to try to to make you uh, sick, while you are always evolving to to confront these new challenges, right? So you, we see this a lot in nature. This very interesting.
2: I actually wonder if there isn't some sort of pheromone response or something taking place. Like you said, the the size differential is just like, what? How does this happen? So there has to be a reason for it. Maybe that egg smells better than their eggs or something the way that um, yeah. They're are.
1: Definitely tricking them, I don't know how. Uh, it might also be frequency dependent. So some behaviors, if you do it too much, then, of course, they will evolve something to make sure that this is not happening else they get stinked because all oh, your eggs are getting kicked out and you are raising someone else. But if it's very rare occasion, so maybe just 5% of the population are receiving those parasitic eggs, maybe there's not a strong selection to, to identify those eggs. And you also incur the risk to throw your own eggs out of the nest by this. A mechanism to recognize them so uh, it's not always so easy and it depends maybe if it's not super often happening maybe there's there's not a strong selection to, to differentiate it but yeah it can also be some other mechanism that is not visual of course well
0: um yeah this um this is really interesting such an interesting discussion but we went already over the hour so I want you to give the opportunity to (laughs) to get a break from us. um, Yeah, thank you so much for clarifying so many um, different questions and um, for your really interesting work. Uh, It's really amazing. So um, yeah, we wish you all the best also for your new start um, in New York City. Yeah, and um, yeah, we wish you a lot of luck. And are you going to stay in the same type of research in evolutionary uh, biology?
1: Um, yes, so yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. And yeah, like if anyone has further questions or whatever, you can always write to me. I'm happy to answer and to discuss and learn more. And uh, yes, I, I plan to to continue research on this area.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful, I'm um, so glad. and. Uh
1: yeah also feel always free to come back here
0: and um maybe you can update us with your new research when you when you <laughs> have something that you want to share with us um yeah reach out any time or maybe i'll I'll check in with you at some point when uh, cause it would be interesting to see what what you're doing next and um and follow your path as a scientist that's uh, really interesting and um yeah, thank you so much, and thank, yeah, you, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thanks for uh, the question in the chat. Um, and um, yeah, follow the club. Um, if you like discussions like these, uh, we will have Doctor Ak- Akira Kaguto here talking about um his molecular robots and it's all about collaboration today here on <laughs> and how he managed to have design molecular robots that cooperate and behave in swarms which is really interesting um so somehow it was by chance like it was random that today uh, everything is about cooperation <laughs> so thank you i mean and um yeah uh, i hope when you come to new york city maybe we can we can meet in person one day will be, okay. yeah we'll let you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay thank you everyone and enjoy the rest of your day and i hear you all back soon so i'll close the room and three two one bye everyone thank you